like to turn in your Bibles, please, again to Exodus chapter 20. I just insert a little note here. This is not a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're just looking at one commandment together this evening under the heading, Putting God First. And so I take you to verse 3, commandment number 1. You shall have no other gods before me, or in some versions, besides me. You shall have no other gods before me. Please allow a little background information. You may be familiar with this, but let remind you that the book of Exodus, the name Exodus means exit or departure. It's one of the first five books of the Bible, commonly known as the Pentateuch, and these books were authored by Moses. Some people think this book was written about the 13th century BC. Exodus comprises of 40 chapters, the first 19 from chapter 1 uh, verse to, through to chapter 19. Uh, this is about uh, the miraculous escape from Egypt for Israel. And from chapter 20, our chapter this evening, to the end of the book, this is about the giving of the law and the instructions for the tabernacle. So I read again at verse, chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, as we reflect on the opening verses of Exodus chapter 20, we can notice here that these words reflect the structure of royal treaties in those ancient times. Let me just explain a little further about that. First of all, if a king uh, was going to uh, pronounce a treaty to his people, then in the first place he would identify himself. And then he would give a short history, a summary of the nation's recent history, and then he would actually pronounce the stipulation uh, regarding the royal treaty. So we find here the same pattern. Verse 2, the king announces himself. I am the Lord God. I am the Lord your God. A better Jehovah or Yahweh. I am the Lord your God. This is whom I am. And here's a summary of your recent history. It is I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And now here are the stipulations, or in this instance, here are my commands to you as my people. Beginning at verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, and then you read down the following nine commands as we did a few moments ago. So Jehovah is announcing these words to his people, to Israel, He speaks of them as being his treasure, his special treasure. He takes a delight in them because they are indeed his special people, a special nation, a chosen nation. And he's making clear to them that as they begin, as it were here, the birth of the nation formally, then he is their king, 
and consequently, they are his subjects. They are to be subject to him. They are to live under his authority because he is king and he has entered into a covenant relationship with them. So we speak of the old covenant, that arrangement which God has made with his people. God took the initiative in that arrangement and it is his covenant as it were and he's going to seal that covenant now with his holy and precious law including the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And so therefore his people Israel they are to be a submissive people. They are to be obedient to his commands and his laws and stipulations. They are to be an obedient people, and furthermore, they are to be a grateful people, because God has worked so wonderfully and marvelously in the life of that people. And so they are to be a grateful people and a praising people, because they are living under the sovereignty of God. Because he is their king and they're living under his sovereignty. And so we need to look at verse 1 again. And God spoke all these words saying. God spoke. God speaks many times in Holy Scripture. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And God spoke. God spoke his creative word and he brought creation into being. Stephen reminded us this morning that God spoke again. Genesis chapter 12, when God spoke to Abraham of old, a man of great faith. And when God made those many promises to Abraham about the people and the land and the future. And God spoke here on this occasion as we read it, and God spoke all these words. And then, and in his last days, God has spoken unto us by his Son, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 1. And God continues to speak, because every time you open your Bible and you read it carefully and prayerfully and meditate upon what you have read, then God is going to speak to you. He's going to speak a word of comfort or consolation, if that is what is needed. He's going to speak a word of rebuke or of encouragement to you. And so God continues to speak to his people. And when we think about the moral law, we can say very briefly three things about the moral law. And the first thing we say about the moral law with the psalmist of old is that the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord was not to justify us by faith. Only Christ justifies us through faith because of his finished work on the cross. The holy law, the commandments were given to instruct us. And as the scripture says, the law was to be our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and to faith in him. Secondly, Uh, The moral law is unalterable because it is in perpetual use. Hence, 
It was engraven. It was written upon tables of stone. And thirdly, the moral law is illustrious, or it demonstrates the glory of God. If we'd read the previous chapter, chapter 19, we'd read of Moses ascending Mount Sinai and speaking with God and then descending the mountain and returning to the people who were gathered at the foot of the mountain and God God was instructing the people to sanctify themselves before the giving of the law and he set certain bounds upon the people that they could only come thus far and no farther. Hence to create that sense of reverence toward him. And of course, the moral law was written by God's own finger. And it was also carefully placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And then there are keys to unlock these commandments. And again, I'm only being brief this evening. I'm literally giving you headings. But there are five keys to unlock the commandments. Key number one is that these commandments reflect God's character. If you would know what God is like, then read carefully the Ten Commandments and think about what they're saying. Secondly, these Ten Commandments are meant to exercise full authority always, not only to the children of Israel in those far-off days. They maintained their authority today. They were designed in the first place for God's people, but they're also to be meant for all mankind. They're a rule of faith. And if you were not a believer or before you were converted and you read these Ten Commandments, then they would condemn you and they would convict you because they would speak to you at a deep level. But after conversion, if you are now a true believer and have Christian faith, these commandments are friendly. And they smile down upon you. And they're meant to be your guide and your instructor. Fourthly, each of the Ten Commandments covers a family of sins. Let me give you an obvious example. We read down there at verse 13, you shall not murder. Well, that means what it says it means. It means uh, not kill another by uh, deliberate intention. But each of these commandments, there's a head of the family. And the head of this family is murder. But behind the head, there is a family of sins. Hatred. Gossip. Slander. To kill another person's reputation. And finally, in terms of these five keys to understanding these Ten Commandments, then we can say that we notice that they are set in in negative terms. Do not do this and do not do that. But in God's mind and his purpose, they are meant to encourage positive virtues if we really adopt them and take them seriously. And God spoke all these words, sometimes known as the Decalogue, or quite simply, the Ten Words, or as we know it, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord your God. 
for Israel, they could think back to God and they could know him as their creator. They could know God as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. They could know God more recently when God has spoken uh, out of that burning bush to his servant Moses and said to Moses, tell the people, I am who I am, the great I am. They knew God because of the uh, miraculous ways in which he had been demonstrating his power in Egypt through the ten plagues and also through the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. And so they, he says to his people, his chosen people, I am the Lord your God. And he says to his people today, the Christian community, and to individual Christians, I am the Lord your God. I am Jehovah. Just think who I am. I'm your creator. I have delivered you out of bondage. As we read here, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. I delivered you from the world. And all its attractions and its pleasures and its entertainments and the fact that it's a fallen and sinful world. It's a world under God's judgment. But I've delivered you from all of that and out of the house of bondage or the house of slavery once you were enslaved in sin. But now you've been set free from the guilt and the power of sin. So I am the Lord, your God. So a point I'd like to make now, the first point really here is a positive point. Let us acknowledge the true God. Let us remember who he is. Let us give him all the glory and the honor because God has graciously revealed himself to us through the pages of this book and in creation and of course in Christ. He's revealed his character and his being and his nature to us. And so this God whom we worship and adore, to put it very simply, is the God who is He just is, and he always has been, and he always will be. He's other. He's not like anything else in his whole creation. He's other, self-existent, eternal, and all his attributes and perfections. And so let us recall, let us realize that we worship the Lord our God, Jehovah God. But then this evening we're thinking of other gods. And let's admit that there is a certain attraction in other gods. Yes, because other gods, it would appear on the surface, are not as demanding as the true God. They don't seem to want us to do all these do's and don'ts. Of course, in the ancient times, people worshipped many gods. This people, Israel, have just been released from slavery in Egypt. And in ancient Egypt, which was a great civilization, they worshipped a multiplicity of gods. 
And no doubt this had had its effect upon the children of Israel. But now they're called to worship one God, the living God. But those gods, in ancient times, they were made of wood and stone. And with those gods, you could touch them. You could see them. You could look at them. They may be in a white wayside shrine, or they may be one that you kept in your home. But they were gods that were tangible and visible. As it says in Scripture, this People who worshipped this God, they were worshipping the work of their own hands. They've carved this image, or they've made this stone, God. But this God, Jehovah, this God is the God above all gods. And so, I just bring you a definition here of idol worship of worshipping other gods, however attractive they may appear to be. A definition not to allow any person or any creative thing, however valuable or excellent, to rival God in our affections. Literally here we read at verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. It means in the face. In the face, in the old William Tyndale New Testament version, 1530, I think it was, uh, he says, in my sight, you shall have no other gods in my sight. Whilst you're worshipping me, you are not to worship other gods or have other idols. What he's saying in effect to the children of Israel is that you are to with your heart and with your all being, you are to worship me, Jehovah. He's saying that there's to be no other object of worship in your life, that I have absolute authority over you, that I am to be supreme in your experience and in your life. What he's saying in effect is, you are to have no other gods at all. You shall have no other gods before me but as moderns is it not easy to dismiss these things about idols and other gods as we look back to ancient civilizations we are advanced 21st century people we do not worship other gods and idols these days we don't have these stone things and wood things in our in our homes well Do we or do we not worship other gods in the 21st century? The straightforward answer to that is that yes, we do. We worship a multiplicity of gods. But you see, modern day gods, if I can express it in that way, they are more subtle and sophisticated. And even for the Lord's people, they can gradually gain our attention they can gradually and increasingly become more interesting and it almost happens imperceptibly that we do not even notice that perhaps we are setting up another God alongside of Jehovah God and of course we remember the enemy of souls and Satan's 
ambition in life is to ruin Christians, to ruin churches, to ruin families. And so, for believers, what could these other gods be? What shape or form do they appear in? I'll just give you some obvious examples. It could be our possessions. It could be our home or our children. It could be Google. It could be iPads and iPhones and things of that nature. I'm not exactly at the cutting edge of modern technology, but I'm not against modern technology when I say those things. But we need to take care. Because Google has a lot of, a lot of knowledge and a lot of power. Really, it's anything which has, or which offers, or makes, should I say, a totalitarian demand upon us, upon our time, upon our minds, upon our lives. Anything, in fact, which usurps the rightful place of the living God. So, that little list I've presented to you, those things are very worthy and indeed legitimate, even Google. But we need to be aware of the enemy of our souls. You see, other gods, whatever shape or form, whatever name we give to them, they demand our slavish service. They're always going to be disappointing in the end, however appealing, however attractive they may come to us. They're never going to fully satisfy. They certainly can't answer our prayers. They are always limited in power and extent. They can't help me on my deathbed. They can't deliver me from any trouble or any adverse circumstance. They can't forgive me of my sins. They can't give me eternal life. They can't give me heaven. So we acknowledge the true God, but we also admit the attractions of the other gods. So we need an antidote. We need a remedy against all of this. Three things briefly. First of all, let's take on board the words of the Apostle Paul, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. Set your mind on the things above. Secondly, another antidote is, in the words of the old children's chorus that I haven't heard or sung for many a year, count your blessings, count them one by one. So reflect on your life and your daily experience and count your blessings. And when you count your blessings, remember that those blessings are showered down upon you from God, from heaven. And thirdly, an antidote could be the creation. Just stop and wonder and marvel at the universe that surrounds us and the wonder and the beauty of creation. You see, there clearly is going to be 
these other idols and gods are going to be a problem for believers because we read at the very end of 1 John chapter 5, the very closing words of his letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. But then let me speak to anyone here tonight who perhaps hasn't come to faith in Christ. You need to acknowledge a spiritual need because these Ten Commandments set before you the eternal standard of right and wrong. And these commandments, as I mentioned earlier, they will condemn you and they will convict you because, as the scripture says, all have fallen short, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Would you turn with me, please, to the first reading this evening, which was Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. It's a very familiar incident in the ministry of Jesus Christ. I'm aware of that. But it makes for a good illustration, I think, for what I've been trying to uh, say to you this evening. It is obviously the incident of Christ and that encounter with the rich young ruler. And this young man was clearly a seeker. Verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to Jesus, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now this is very encouraging at the outset. Here is a young man, possibly a ruler in a synagogue. We we learn that he was a rich young man. Here is a young man living in a society at that time in Israel where there was much unbelief. And even in the ministry of Christ where there was an increasing hostility and opposition to Christ and to his message. And yet we find that this young ruler is seeking after truth. And in actual fact, he asks a very good question. Could not be a better question. His question is, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus responded at verse 17, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the young man replied very quickly and with much confidence. He asked which ones. And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said very quickly and confidently, oh, all these things I've kept from my youth. And he was probably speaking the truth. I don't sense that he committed a murder. I don't think he committed adultery. Perhaps he's not stolen anything from anyone. Perhaps he's not coveted his neighbor or anything like that. So in his thinking and in his standards, yes, he gave a correct answer. All these things I have kept from my youth. And yet you see the young man had not thought through the commandments deeply. He was only thinking of them at the surface level. He was only thinking about them at the, as it were, the head of that family of sins, murder and so on. 
And so, therefore, this is how he could answer. And, of course, he was also in a society that put such great emphasis on good works. So his question was all about, what can I do? What can I do to enter into eternal life? What can I do to be made righteous with God? What can I do to have the hope of heaven? What can I do? But Jesus shows this young man his besetting sin. Verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, if you want to be righteous before God, if you want to be justified in God's sight, if you want salvation, full and free, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. The man's question was, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Christ's answer to him is to go and to sell all his possessions. And we read at the end of the gospel narrative there, at the end of verse 22, that he had great possessions and he went away sorrowful. The problem for the young man was that he loved his possessions He valued his possessions more than he valued his never-dying soul, his eternal soul. Hence, he went away sorrowful. We read in Acts 17, verse 30, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this, raising him from the dead. So God commands all people everywhere. Sometimes you get the impression that the gospel is presented to people and, well, there it is. There's the gospel and now you can think about it and you can consider it carefully and you can perhaps let me know on a postcard whether you decided or not. As if there is a choice. God commands people everywhere to repent It's a command of God, our creator, of the true God, that we are to repent. And he grants us that gift, something we could never do in our own strength and power. So people may know the truth intellectually. God may have spoken to their conscience in earlier days. They may have religious affections. But there's been no work of conversion. There's no evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in that soul because there's a barrier preventing them from coming to faith in Christ and perhaps that barrier is one of their gods with a small g or their idols and perhaps that is because they value that idol more than they value their never dying soul in our church car park we have a barrier And when these buildings are not in use, that barrier is locked with a padlock. That's obviously so that any passing motorist can't just pop into our car park for free parking. But then if you want to open that barrier, you need the right key. And you use that key and put it into the lock. And then you can open the barrier. And motor vehicles can enter into the car park. And so it is with coming to Christ. 
that there is a key, a key to that lock that will unlock that barrier to souls who are still perhaps rebelling or clinging to their pride who are holding on to that something that is so important to them in their life. And that lock is Christ. And that lock is Christ upon Calvary's cross, the crucified one, who took upon himself our sin and made that way back to God. And so we then experience that love of God We know something of his mercy toward us. We know of his full and free forgiveness. And then, you see, the question was, what shall I do that I may have eternal life? You may have eternal life if you look to Christ and him crucified and believe on him and put God first in your life. And so... In the text before us this evening, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. We are to acknowledge the true God. We are to admit the attractions of other gods. There is an antidote we can take, a remedy to help us in this. If we are still far from Christ, then we need to acknowledge our spiritual need and surely our ambition, overriding ambition, is that I would be a Christian. That I could say that I was a saved person and that through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You shall have no other gods before me. I will be good and gracious to you. I will be approachable by you. I will be a father, a savior, a friend to you. And you will need no other gods beside me. You may come to me. You may love me. You may prove my presence and receive my forgiveness, life and power. You may share my eternal purposes and be my child. And I will be your God forever. Amen.